Well, good morning, Trinity Church. It's good to see all of you here this morning. Uh, Again, my name is Jeremy Kuhn. I'm one of the elders here. Uh, If you've been coming here for any length of time and we haven't met yet, I would love to meet you at some point. We, uh, as you know, we've been going through the book of Genesis, just getting started about halfway through our first um, section. We're halfway through chapter four, which is where we're picking up today. Normally, we have everyone stand for the reading of God's word. Um, we actually did that differently last week, and but typically that's what what we do. I'm actually going to kind of give a little bit of an introduction before that, and this is going to be kind of like a previously on Genesis. You know, when you watch a series of a TV show or something and you've got a recap of what happened before. I want to do that before we read the section, just to put everything in context, um, because we're going to jump right in after that. So what we're doing is we're coming, where we're at, is where we're coming to the end of the first major section. We have identified that for you um, using the, the term toledoth, which is just a Hebrew word that means generations. And the portion that we're in right now began in Genesis 2-4, saying these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now what we see in this section is that Genesis lays the foundation for how we understand the world. You have heard before that the opening chapters of Genesis tell us why the world is the way that it is. God created good world in Genesis 1. And now in 2.4 through 4.26, the word tells us why the world is the way that it is right now. We've seen so far is that this good world has been subjected to a fall. It's been subjected to corruption because of man's rebellion. In this fall, though, a promise was made of an offspring who would defeat the serpent that introduced doubt and introduced sin into this good world. We also see that this seed or offspring would defeat that enemy, but that one offspring that initially the hope was placed, Cain, whom Eve had expected to be this promised seed, ended up being a murderer. Abel, the one that the text says the Lord regarded, who found God's favor, is dead, and Cain is in exile. So the question left hanging for a reader, someone who's approaching this text for the first time, seeing that promise, but now seeing the progression of what has been going on, is wondering, where is this promised offspring? Can there still be one with Abel being killed? And this is where we pick up the story. And though many of us have trusted in Christ for salvation, many of us here have received salvation, salvation by faith, we live in anxious toil and tribulation. And we live in this toil and tribulation because of our own sin, and we live in this toil and tribulation because of the sins of those around us and all of the fallen conditions of this world. And a lot of us are left waiting and wondering, when will this end? When will I be free of this body of death? And the rest of Genesis 4, starting in verse 17, ends up pointing us towards the hope that we need. So now, if you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. 
Genesis 4, starting at verse 17. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So in this passage, like I said, humanity is still waiting for the promised offspring. People are waiting for an offspring who will bring deliverance. And instead, we see in this text the line of the murderous son Cain flourishing. Now we too are in a position and a posture of waiting. The conditions that we wait in are essentially no different than the condition of the people here. Because we are in a world that is surrounded by and plagued by sin and the fall. For those of you who like to write down main ideas, this is it. In a world overcome by sin, you will find hope in the promises of God. In a world overcome by sin, you will find hope in the promises of God. And those promises are wrapped up in his name, in who he is. That's where we're going to get this morning. This morning, I'm going to walk through this passage in three parts. What I want you to see uh, from what we just read is that each of these points, look at what is noted in the line of Cain, but in contrast with the line of Seth that the text ends on. What we're looking at is how those who are of the seed of the woman who are to face the sometimes overwhelming and long-standing presence and influence of the seed of the serpent. And how we do this is through hope in God's promises and what those promises lead to because of who God is. So I have three promises or where those lead, essentially where those promises lead to, three, three places those promises lead to. One is living for eternal purposes. Two, trusting that God's ways are good. And three, that Christ, we are led to Christ himself. So again, living for eternal purposes, trusting that God's ways are good, and Christ himself. So first, hope in God's promises leads to living for an eternal purpose. 
the hope of this fallen world often falls on what it makes for itself. And I'll explain by that what I mean in a moment, but we also see that hope in God's promise, as we look to the end, a renewed hope causes people to live with an eternal purpose. Now, Genesis 4, as we heard last week, is broken up into three sections, and these sections are marked by the statement of a man knowing his wife. In 4.1, Adam knew his wife. 4.17, Cain now knows his wife. And then in verse 25, Adam again knows his wife. 4.17, Cain knew his wife. For the curious, his wife would have been one of his sisters or another relative, because in Genesis 5.4, it says that Adam had other sons and daughters. That's where his wife came from. And just, just in case you're wondering... I want to remind you, though, that we should be reading these chapters like it's our first time hearing this story. Like I made at the beginning, God made a promise in the midst of cursing the serpent in Genesis 3.15, and that promise is that he would bring an offspring, a seed, who would bruise the serpent's head, effectively crushing him and destroying him. It's worth repeating that because the context of this is important, especially since we are so focused, um, since we're focusing our attention on the last 10 verses, and even though chapter four has these three sections, it's all part of a single, sec- single story of, that began in chapter two, verse four. At the beginning of chapter four, we had a glimmer of hope with the birth of Cain. But like I said, it was revealed through Cain's actions that he was not the promised seed. The one the Lord had regard for, Abel, is dead. And as Cain leaves the presence of the Lord, which we see in 4.16, we are faced with the question I mentioned a moment ago. Where is the offspring? Where is their hope? And I want you to just imagine the tension here. I want you to feel it. We have a murderer who is now bearing children. What will his descendants be? How will he raise up his offspring? Well, let's take a look. Cain's wife, looking at verse 17, Cain's wife bears Enoch. At some point, Cain builds a city and names the city after his son Enoch. Like I just mentioned, and see in verse 16, that Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. He's living in exile. He's living apart from God. The fact that he is away from Yahweh's presence, living apart from him, should inform us about how and why Moses records these details. Periodically, Genesis, we see a name is defined. Moses didn't record the reason for Enoch's name, but a Hebrew reader would have picked up on the fact that the name Enoch is related to the word that means dedicated. And the naming of this city by Cain, of his son Enoch, is an attempt to establish his dynasty or his legacy. Now, you might be wondering why he didn't name it after himself. Well, I'm glad you asked. Both in ancient culture and our own, sons carry the name or the legacy of the family. Today, in our Western context, the surname is carried by the son when he gets married. The wife takes the husband's name, and the the father's name, the father's legacy, is carried on through the son. So even though that's somewhat challenged today, it's still widely practiced. We are used to that. Even in Israel's day, during the monarchy, we see evidence of this. One example I found is in 2 Samuel 18, where Absalom, David's son, sets up a pillar. 
Now it says in 2 Samuel 18, 18, Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken up for himself and taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, now listen to this, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name and called it Absalom's monument to this day. So Absalom had no son, so he called it after his own name. But Cain, Cain does have a son. And in order to carry on his legacy, he names the city after his son. Now, verse 18 picks up the genealogy of Adam through Cain that began in verse 1. Chapter 4 begins a genealogy. And this genealogy is interrupted by the narrative of Cain and Abel. It resumes for half a verse with one comment on Enoch. And now verse 18 gives a list of names leading to the seventh from Adam through Cain, which is Lamech. Now, before we come back and look at Lamech, I would just want you to see the legacy of the genealogy in verses 20 to 21. Attached to each of these names is some sort of accomplishment, some sort of invention that the descendants of Cain produced. We have tent dwellers, ranchers, musicians, metal workers. Among all of these things, there's probably also union reps. <laughs> because if you live in a fallen world and live in a fallen workplace, you know that unions are formed and they're not necessarily good things. Well, it depends on what side you're on. But, and like, kidding aside on the surface, these are all fine things, right? We would call these good things, things that increase the quality of life. Imagine a, a world where there's no buildings or farms, uh, no music, and no tools. There's nothing offensive about these things, and nothing that cries out and says, well, look at the awful line of Cain. He made... He produced metal workers. I have to use a hammer now. Right? Nothing like that. Rather, we could say that these things are evidence of common grace. Just as Cain received mercy at the hand of the Lord so that no one would kill him in retribution, he continues to produce a common grace element in the development of society and culture. And these are things we can be thankful for. But I think it's also important to notice what we don't see here we do not see a source of hope. We do not see worshipers of Yahweh. The things that man has developed are indeed great things, but they are not a source of hope, and they do not address the problem of sin. So uh, essentially what we see here is the legacy of a man who has gone away from the presence of the Lord. And again, nothing to wink at, nothing that offends our sensibilities, but nothing about God. Nothing about God because Cain has taken up his union with the serpent. He has been identified as the seed of the serpent by being cursed, just like the serpent had been. And just as the serpent reduced and diminished the greatness of God to tempt man and exalt himself, now we see in that line a legacy of godlessness. Again, it's not the most horrible thing that we see, but we do see what ultimately is very heartbreaking. No God. Ecclesiastes makes a similar point. Solomon, speaking of his accomplishments in Ecclesiastes 2, says this. He says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which 
to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. And here's his assessment. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. All of Ecclesiastes leads towards the final saying that the end goal of man is to fear God and to keep his commandments. But in Ecclesiastes, we see that Solomon shows that that pursuit is vain. It's empty. And so it was with the line of Cain because he was part of the seed of the serpent, a, a seed, a line, a series of offspring who would not know God. Now, I know I said that the point here was related to God's promises, but we're going to wait on that for a moment. So I just do ask you to bear with me as we move on to our second point. Hope and God's promises leads to trust in that God's ways are good. Now, as we turn our attention back to Lamech, the seventh from Adam in Cain's line, we see a man who does what is right in his own eyes. As God's people, we are to trust that God's ways are good. In our confession this morning, we know that we don't do what is good, But hope in God's promises does trust that his ways are good. I skipped over verse 19 previously to focus on the genealogy, so I'm going to take us back there. When we're reading our Bible, when we're reading a genealogy, and I'm assuming you all diligently read your genealogies, when we see the author stop and say something about one person, the author is slowing down. He's slowing us down. Moses does so in a way in verse 19 that slows us down a bit. And then the breaks really come on in verse 23 with Lamech's poetic serenade to his wives. But I want to point out two things that that the author Moses points out about Lamech. And the first is his adultery. The second is his murder. But first, Lamech's adultery. If you're familiar with the Bible, you know that polygamy happened. The Bible doesn't gloss over that. The Israelites, who were the first recipients of this book, were themselves descendants of a polygamist. For Jacob, the father of the 12 tribes, um, he had two wives and two concubines. All of his children came through four women. But let's remember what God revealed at the end of Genesis 2. In Genesis 2, God made man from woman, or excuse me, woman from man, brings her to him, and we see the first marriage, which God defines in Genesis 2, 4, saying, Then a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one one flesh. Now, I don't think I need to belabor this point with you, but I want you to see Genesis 4, 19 in light of Genesis 2, 24. A man, singular, holds fast to his wife. Singular. This is the pattern that God has established. And now we have Lamech, 
Lamech has two wives. And this is meant to get our attention. Moses just didn't just say this in passing. He put it on a billboard. Lamech had two wives. Every time polygamy is mentioned in the Bible, every time sexual immorality is mentioned in the Bible, we know that the consequences are disastrous. And so when we come across this, we should be saying, what is going to happen now? Feeling that because we know that it's not good in the first place. The society building structure that God had instituted has been violated. And what kind of wives are these? Like I mentioned before, names mean something, especially in Genesis. Lamech's wives are named unlike Cain's wife. This should also get your attention that this detail is given. And as English speakers, again, we just don't see this unless something points it out. A lot of times we have footnotes in our Bibles that will point to these things. For Ada and Zilla, one commenter, commentator has pointed out that Ada usually is associated with a word that means ornament, and Zilla, uh, something that perhaps means uh, shrill or tinkle, something tied to, to musical uh, beauty. So don't get me wrong here. We, we can appreciate beauty. God appreciates beauty, even in his word. He mentions the beauty of Rachel, the woman who married Jacob mentions that her, she's beautiful in form and appearance, but I, I think that the recognition of this common grace is overshadowed, eclipsed by the, by the polygamy that's in it. It's meant to stand in contrast to 426, where people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So that's the first characteristic about Lamech that we see. The second is Lamech's vengeance. Now we see that Lamech had some kids who were industrious. May have looked like things were getting better. The development of society, culture, technology undoubtedly made the world a a better place or an easier place to live. But like we heard last week, the world is not getting better. Generation after generation, we see a continual process of men harming one another, of men killing one another. And we see things, this development of culture here. So just think about this for just a second. We, on just like on the outside, are going to look at the world and see the development of farming, right? We produce more crops, feed more people. We see buildings that are safer and more secure. All of these things are continually growing, but man still hates each other. So when we see in Genesis how Lamech's sons produce all of these things, then we get this shocking poem starting in verse 23. This is where Moses really puts the brakes on the story and slows us way down. Look at it. This is a poem, clearly. We have three parallel lines. Let's take them in turn. Lamech has waxed poetic with his wives and he has... Not quite learned the skill of a haiku, but it's poetic nonetheless. Just like Adam, you know, he sang a poem about seeing his wife for the first time. Now we have our second poem, but his is far different. Listen. He says, Ada and Zilla, hear my voice. You wise of Lamech, listen to what I say. So what we have here is Lamech making a command to hear and listen. This could imply a couple of things. One, 
He may be commanding his wives to take note of what he's saying so that they will be in a place to to obey it. He could be speaking to them as though they were to take part in what he's about to declare. Another possible way to see this is that he is threatening his wives. Some have connected this to Genesis 3.16, that the man will rule over his wife. And here we have the culmination of that corrupted rule under a sinful heart. It's hard to tell either way, but as we pay attention to the mood and the rising tension of the section, it's not hard to believe either of these possibilities. The second part of the poem entails the escalation of Lamech's violence. Lamech has killed. Lamech has committed murder. That verb killed links it right back to Cain. Same word. Who killed his brother. Why did Lamech kill someone? Well, he was wounded. He was bruised. He was sinned against, very likely, but he retaliated. And he didn't just retaliate. He gave full vent to his hate. He even seems to be boasting that he killed a young man, perhaps a man in his prime. But either way, he has killed a man for a lesser offense. As we think about our own conflicts that we have, where do we not do very much of the same thing? It's not just tit for tat, so to speak, but we'll escalate. We'll one-up them on how much injury they have caused us. The last part of the line is his justification for his actions. And this is nothing less than a corruption of what God had said to Cain back in 415. This is actually quite remarkable, looking at it again from last week. But in mercy, God protected Cain from facing revenge from his other kinsmen. 415 uses the word vengeance. Lamech says revenge in verse 424. It's the same word. Nothing's different about it. But what's remarkable is that God has protected Cain by promising a sevenfold retribution, which seven is often a number that just indicates a completeness. So there will be full retribution. There will be a full and just punishment for anyone who kills you. It's shocking to us to even hear that, knowing that Cain is a murderer, and later we know that murderers are supposed to be killed by the hands of men in Genesis uh, 9, I believe. But God has exercised this mercy. There would be complete justice if anyone killed Cain. But Lamech has taken this language, he's taken this mercy, he's taken this protection, and turned it into a, a reason to escalate the amount of violence that he would give in return. If anyone hurts my feelings, I'm going to slaughter them like a pig and make them suffer as long as possible. That's the culmination of his hatred. His thirst for vengeance represents the culmination of the evil that is in his heart. And he represents the culmination of the line of Cain. And what he really represents is the culmination of sin in the world and even in our own hearts. Now, so far, I've told you that my points and the whole point of the sermon is hope on God's promises, but I haven't given you much hope. And this is on purpose, because so far the text hasn't given us much hope. 
This unit that began in Genesis 2-4, we see starting out very nice, but then things take a drastic turn and we see them getting progressively worse and worse. God created everything good. Man was created to represent him, to enjoy perfect fellowship with him. But man heard a different version of the story and he chose differently. Man chose differently than to trust God. Man chose not to believe in God. He chose not to love him. He chose not to obey him. This is what we all do. We choose to seek our own glory, and this is where we find ourselves in this text. We are no better than what we see happening here. If we were in the garden, we would not have done any better, right? We have the ideal man in the ideal conditions who has turned away from the Lord, and all of us have followed suit. This is why the world is the way that it is. This is why we are where we are. But the story does not end there, thank God. The story ends with hope in God's promise because he is a promise-keeping God. Which leads me to my third point, which wraps up the hope of all the others. God's promises lead us to hope in Christ. As we look at the spread of evil, even and especially the remaining evil and sin in our own hearts, we need to remember that God has appointed a son who brings victory, which is why God's promises lead us to Christ. In verse 25, we see the shift again in the, in the story, a return to Adam. And this is rather abrupt. We have this wonderful poem from Lamech, and all of a sudden we're talking about Adam again. It's like you're watching a horror movie and all of a sudden your wife turns the TV to the Discovery Channel or the Hallmark Channel. Adam again knew his wife. She bears a son. She calls his name Seth. And I want you to see how Eve's perspective has changed. This is a mark of the grace at work in her. At the birth of Cain, she says, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord, right? She's taking credit here. We heard this last week. She's giving God's credit some too, right? I have borne a son. And oh yeah, of course, Yahweh has helped with that. The grammar is important, folks. The subject of that sentence that Eve spoke in 4.1 is herself. Look at how different it is in 4.25. God has appointed God is now the subject. She is not taking credit here. She has removed herself from the equation. She is a recipient of God's work. Notice also that she recognizes that Abel was in the line of the seed that she had hoped for, that she was blind to. But she says, another son instead of Abel. She recognizes that Cain, the one that she had gotten, the one that she took credit for, was and just another line that led to murder. She sees Seth as a seed of promise. And it was an overlooked promise before, but now it is crystal clear to her. And a whole lot has changed here, hasn't it? So verse 26, Seth has a son. He names him Enosh. Enosh just means man. Seth may be recognizing that both he and his son are just men. Merely men. It's hard to say... Moses doesn't say anything about us. We'll leave that alone. But what is important is what follows. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Finally. Since the beginning of chapter 3, 
Since the serpent approached the woman and called God's word into question, we have seen judgment and disaster, murder and rebellion. But we also saw a promise. We saw a promise of an offspring or a seed from the man, a man from the woman who would defeat this deceiver. However, the story progresses, and as time progresses, seven generations of time, there was no clear sign of seeing this seed or this offspring have a foothold. There was only a faint faint glimmer in Abel, and he's dead. Now, Moses has composed the story in such a way to give a point to it. It's possible that Seth was born before Lamech, not necessarily, though. Genesis 5.3 tells us that Adam was 130 years old when Seth was born. So if Adam and Eve had their first child when they were a year old, let that sink in. Let's just say there was 20 years between each generation. That's plenty of time to get to Lamech by the time Adam was 120. So whether or not that's the case or not, Moses doesn't say anything about it. But he's, calling, he's saying that people began to call on the name of the Lord not until after Seth's son's Seth's son, Enosh, is on the scene. So assuming the fall happened right away, that's 235 years before people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Right? Imagine it. 235 years. 235 years of darkness. 235 years of pain. As I pointed out before, there were signs of common grace going on. People weren't just going around killing each other all day long. It wasn't a rampage. I don't doubt that there were other murders, but people tolerated each other long enough and well enough so that the earth began to fill. Technology was developing that eased the pain of the curse, but no mention of God, like I said, and Moses makes this really clear because he says in 426, at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord promised offspring flashes back like a flash in a fire pan with a bright ray of hope. It's a hope that leads us all the way to Jesus Christ. This phrase to call upon the name of the Lord is used repeatedly in the Bible to refer to someone who worships the one true God. It's used of Abraham and Jacob, the father of Israel, to mark them off as God's people, as those who were called by his name and those who called on his name. In the course of time, though, we see throughout Israel's history, the people that are called by his name turn from him. They indulge in idolatry and all sorts of immorality and are eventually exiled from the land. They are repeating the story that we have here. As that exile progressed and as the people suffered, they too probably began to wonder if God was going to fulfill his promise. In comes the prophet Joel, thousands of years later, roughly 900 years, not thousands, roughly 900 years after the exodus from Egypt, thousands of years after Adam. But in the midst of judgment and suffering that Israel is facing, Joel brings a message of salvation from God, inviting them to repent. He invites the people, God invites the people through Joel to turn back to him. It's like the exile Cain murders, God approaches Cain. There's an invitation. Joel draws on years of promise and brings this message. 
in Joel 2. In verse 28, he promises the outpouring of the Spirit, and in Joel 2.32, he picks up the language of Genesis 4.26, that same language. It shall come to pass, this is what Joel says, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now we zoom ahead another 500 years, and Jesus, God the Son, becomes incarnate. He lives obedient to his Father, and he calls on the name of his Father, both on the eve of his death and on the cross. Then he dies for the sin of his cursed people. And then on the third day, he rose from the dead. Fifty days later, after Jesus' resurrection, after his ascension, the time comes where the church is born. The Spirit is poured out. Peter speaks in Acts chapter 2. He uses that same language of calling on the Lord. He makes very clear that that Lord that he's referring to is Jesus Christ himself. Peter repeats that message of salvation in Acts 3, 19 to 20, saying to the Jews, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Seth was appointed. Jesus is appointed for your salvation. Paul picks up the language in the passage we read this morning from our assurance. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus is the Lord. He is the fulfillment of the promise. He was the one that we have all been waiting for, that all of the world has been waiting for. A seed that was as small as a mustard seed in Genesis 4 has come to fruition for us who live under the new covenant that Jesus has inaugurated in his own blood. And just as we've seen this morning, God brings his promises to pass in a time that seems like a really, really long time. So as we think about implications and applications, I just want to ask you a couple of questions. How much time has to pass before you start to get weary over your sin? Or how much time has to pass before you get weary about the mundane in and out of your everyday life at work or home school, wherever you're at. Perhaps you have ailments that cause suffering, strained relationships. For most of us, a day is sufficient for these things, are they not? We get up the next morning knowing that we're going to face the same kinds of things again and again. Facing the same person who causes us agony every day. Does this lead you to despair? Well, if it does, you have probably lost sight of Christ and what he is accomplishing and what he has accomplished and what he is going to accomplish. In Genesis, Moses provides this bit of history to remind the people that God is a God who keeps his promises. God is a promise-keeping God. So when we think about the name of the Lord, That's one thing that we need to keep in mind is that what's wrapped up in his name is that he makes a promise and he brings it to pass. But we also need to remember that he keeps his promise in his own timing. And this was a critical lesson for Israel. It's a critical lesson for us as well. It's critical because we are told to be patient until the Lord comes. What do we know of his promises and what do we know of God himself? What is wrapped up in the name to which people call? 
I'm going to give you seven in just a moment, but before we get there, I want to have two truths, two very important truths for you to have in mind before we look at them. Because they help us understand what's behind these promises and who this God is. One is that we are sinful and desperately need redemption. And the second is that we live in the midst of a spiritual warfare. We have a real spiritual enemy, and there's human participants in this who are at enmity with you as a child of God. So here's the seven truths about God and his promises for you to hope in. One, God is faithful and keeps his promises. So we see God keeping his Old Testament promises in at least two ways. One, he's done it. He's done everything that he's promised through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Far from being a a tragic work by wicked men, far from being Satan's triumph over the Son, over Jesus, the cross was God's triumphant victory over Satan's power. That was the bruise on Satan's head. And second, God continues to apply that promise of victory, of that seed, through the promised Holy Spirit, which he has put in every one of you who believes today. So are you struggling with doubt? I mean, who doesn't, really? But look for the evidence of the Spirit in your life. Ask people who are around you to do the same. And I'm not talking about spectacular gifts, but the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. When these are present and increasing in measure, you can take it to heart that he is working in you. God has made a promise. He is keeping his promise, and he's going to redeem that. Second, God is trustworthy. This is related to the last one, but it's a little bit different. He will fulfill what he promises. When God makes a promise, you can take it to the bank. You can cash that check because God cannot lie. His promises never deceive, and he is all-powerful, so his promises never fail. Every one of you who truly repents and believes in Christ can be certain that God will preserve you to the end. This has nothing to do with the strength of your faith or the righteousness of your life, It has everything to do with the power and faithfulness of God in Jesus Christ. As Paul says in Philippians 1.6, He, God, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. God keeps his promises always. You can count on that. Third, God is gracious and initiates his salvation by grace. Not only is God patient, but he's gracious. He doesn't just leave us to figure it out. He initiates salvation. He's the one that brings the seed of promise, along with every other promise he utters, is entirely of God's initiative. It is grace, pure and simple. No obligation does he have. Neither Seth nor Enosh were born worshipers of God, and neither were you. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, 3 that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind because we choose to disobey. We choose to not believe. But in time, God called you by his grace. He does not owe us salvation. 
The promise God made is a promise to save because of his grace, because of his choice. All we do is trust that God will exercise that grace and save a people as we bring the gospel to the world. Fourth, God will be patient with you. God is a patient God. We struggle with what seems like God's delay in keeping his promises. The fact is, delay displays God's patience. He desires for all to come to repentance. Listen to this from 2 Peter 3. It says, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. It's been 2,000 years, and Jesus has still not come back. But we know that he hasn't come back because he is being patient so that other sons and daughters of glory can be brought in. If you have not turned to Christ today, I want you to know that he is being patient with you right now. He has not yet come to judge, but he will. And you need to see his patience with you, the fact that you're still breathing as an act of mercy, giving you an opportunity to repent that the death that he died was for your sin, a punishment that you deserve. But he did it because he chose to love you. And all he asks of you is to trust in him, to follow him, to live with him as your king, to crown him. He will not delay forever. He is being patient with you who believe right now. Rather than leave you in your sin, he is patiently cleansing you and teaching you of his love for you. He is patiently drawing all of us to Christ every day. And the major implication for this is that we need to be patient as we wait for his return. We need to be patient with one another as we wait for others to repent, to to be aware of their own sin. We need to be patient with ourselves when we don't see the growth that we know we need to have. But as we wait on God, does that mean it doesn't matter for how we live? No. We learn that God has made his promises to impact how we live. It matters how we live. Which is number five. God purifies, and he intends for his people to be purified. God purifies. He's a purifying God. He's a cleansing God. God uses suffering, even chastisement, to purify his people. When you consider that over 200 years passed before the people began to call upon the name of the Lord, you can probably imagine what that was like. I mean, just look at the world, the way the world is now, with people doing all sorts of horrifying things to one another. Zechariah, looking for, forward to the Messiah, speaks of the suffering people that he faced. God says in Zechariah 13.9, he says, I will put them into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. See, the connection here is that God purifies us through suffering, all the while teaching us to call upon him who delivers. 
Through suffering, he sanctifies us. Just as Christ learned obedience from what he suffered, just as he entrusted himself to God in the wilderness temptation, we, too, learn to put our faith solely in the God who purifies us through our suffering. God's discipline produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who are trained by it. This relates to the account of Lamech taking two wives to seek his own vengeance and seeking his own vengeance. Right? Living in light of God's promises, knowing that this is a promise that is meant to change us, that he cleanses us in order to follow in his ways, we know that God's design for marriage, what he's declared, is what is good. We know that his mercy and forgiveness towards us implies that we too ought to exercise forgiveness. Reading this passage ahead of time, you may have anticipated us spending a lot of time in what Jesus said to Peter in Matthew 18, when Jesus said, how often will I, my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus says to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Right? Same language of Lamech's vengeance and our forgiveness. But there's so much more going on here, right? It's... So we learn to forgive as God has forgiven us. But we root that in God's forgiveness of us. So it's not just our purification that he's after. He's patient with us and he's keeping his promises so that we would reorient our hopes. This world constantly sings its song, its siren song of hope. And I believe this point goes back to our first point this morning, right? With all of the legacy of Cain, even with all of the good things that they had, right? We put our, our hope in names regularly. If you're associated with a political party, you have a name in mind right now about who you hope will be in office or who you're glad to be in office, depending on where you're at and where you sit. But it's vain. These men will die the things that we trust in will fade away. Part of, I believe part of the point of this is that this is why he doesn't whisk us off to heaven when we get saved. He leaves us here to learn that this home, the way that it is, is not our home. This world is not our home. The worldly pursuits and the accomplishments that we have ultimately do not satisfy They may be a way for us to contribute to the good of man, but they are not what satisfies us, and we need to learn that God is the one who satisfies us so that we would ultimately be known as people who call on his name. Seventh and lastly, God's promise. God is a preserving God, and his promises intend for his people to preserve to the end, or persevere to the end. I always mix those two words up. Persevere, preserve. God's promises means that it matters how we live. It is the very nature of a Christian to repent and live in faith. To repent and follow God. True Christians, all of us, may fall into grievous sin. We may grieve the spirit. We may wound our conscience. We may even lose an experiential knowledge of God's grace. It's a terrible place to be. It's a place without assurance. But still, by God's grace, true Christians do not totally or finally fall away. True Christians are, 
by a new nature and by God's grace going to persevere because of God's unbreakable promise. And those who repent and follow Jesus Christ, Jesus says they will endure to the end, those who are saved. It's not a mark that we don't sin, but it's a mark that we don't turn away. It's a mark that we persevere. And we also don't put our confidence in the decision that we made or prayer that we prayed, an aisle that we walked, or any other moment in time. Right? That is not what we are told. Instead, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13.5 that we are to examine ourselves every day to see if we are in the faith. How we reconcile this with God's election and the definiteness of our salvation and our responsibility is that we know that they both exist. We are called to persevere while we know and trust in that God will preserve. So it doesn't depend on our efforts. It depends on God, but God is determined to use your efforts, efforts that you put forward in hopes that reorienting your life towards God will result in your final salvation, that you might grow in holiness. God has kept his promises in Jesus Christ. The name by which we are saved, the name by which we call out to, is where we find our hope. There is one promise that we're still waiting for him to keep, a day that we look forward to when Christ returns and we enter into glory, into a full redemption, not just of our souls, but of our bodies as well, as we live on a renewed heaven and earth. That is the final promise that we are waiting for, and we know that he will keep it because he has kept his promises so far. God will fully and finally deliver his people, not just from guilt and condemnation, but from this body of death, right? Jesus is coming back. Christ will return. And when that happens, the dead will be raised imperishable. We will be changed. The dross will be gone. All of the things that we had our hopes in before will be nothing. They will be vain. Our sanctification will be complete. And we will give way to glory. We will be like him because we will see him as he is because we have been a people who call on his name. So I tell you today to stand firm, to persevere, to call on his name. As you call on his name, live a life that is worthy of that calling. He's promised to never leave you, not to the end of the age. It's a promise that he will keep. And this is the foundation for that. For he, God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? There is no better promise keeper and there is no better promise. This is the name by which we call upon. Let's pray. Father, we give you great praise because you are God who saves. We confess that we are often impatient, even in despair. We are despaired over our own sin. We are despaired about the sins of of those around us. We are despaired at the horrors that are committed in this world, 
in our neighborhoods, in our streets, and sometimes even in our homes. But we can trust in you because you are God who has led us to the truth of who you are and what you're accomplishing. You have given us a story to point to how you work out your ways, and we pray that we would be better understanders, faithfully trusting that you are accomplishing your work. Help us to live in anticipation of your coming, pursuing holiness. It is in your name that we call and in your name that we pray. Amen.